it is good to be with you uh, this morning, and uh, I'm thankful that uh, Pastor Allen is uh, enjoying a break in Zimbabwe and, and allowing me to come and, and speak to you uh, here this morning. I pastored a church for 20 years, not too far from here, through the woods. You've heard of Bono, a little community called Bono. I was there for <clears throat> almost 20 years, and then since then I've been doing uh, a lot of Israel-related ministry and work, and I'm also the business pastor of a large corporation in Cedar Hill. Yes, business pastor, and that's a little bit different, but I lead Bible studies and do a lot of the same things that a pastor would do uh, there at that company. But uh, Pastor Allen asked me today if I would come and speak to you about heaven, because I've done a, a lot of study for a lot of years, put together a lot of teachings, probably several weeks, maybe months worth of teachings on heaven. So I've squeezed it all down to you, uh, for you today in, for six hours. Is that good? Six hours? All right. I worked hard to get it there. Uh, if you have your Bible, go to Revelation chapter 21. If somebody were to ask you, um, where do you go when you die? And you said heaven. And they said, tell me about it. Honestly, what would you be able to say? And I find that most people, especially outside the church, can't really answer that question. They don't really know what heaven is, what heaven is like. In fact, there's some things that we've been taught that maybe aren't even quite right, aren't biblical. So what is heaven like? And I want you to know today that heaven is for real. You see the little cartoon there. Um, there's two assumptions there. Number one, that we have pianos in heaven. Um, there may be. The other assumption is, is kind of the idea that we're all going to become angels. You see all the people with wings there, and we're going to go in, and we're just going to kind of sing in heaven. There'll be singing in heaven, but that's not all that we're going to be doing. So... Uh, let's talk a little bit more about heaven. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. John, captured up into heaven, says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them. And they will, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So there's a lot of truth there about heaven. I'm afraid much of what the world knows and understands from us, however, is not truth. There's a lot of unbiblical teaching about heaven, where we've kind of made heaven out to be a little bit of a cartoon or a place that's, that should be in a, in a sci-fi movie or something that is fairy tale, very unearthly, very beyond what we know and, and see here. And a lot of tradition that we've embraced within our culture have also helped to create these myths, if you will, about heaven. For example, I want to introduce you to uh, some of these myths, heaven will be nothing like earth. I hear that all the time. It's going to be nothing like earth. And indeed, we live on a fallen planet, right? But if you go back to the beginning in Genesis, after every day of creation, God said, it is good. And the Lord said, it is good. And he made something else and he said, it is good. And, and so therefore, before the fall, as God made planet earth, as he created this universe, it was good. It was perfect and it was pleasing to him. So heaven will have similarities to a redeemed earth. Notice I said redeemed, that's the key, earth without sin. So to say heaven is nothing like earth is not true. And then I hear heaven's boring. Heaven is boring. There's going to be nothing to do in heaven. There's going to be no adventure, no discovery, 
no process, no progress. Everything in heaven will be one long church service where we sing songs, play harps, and float on clouds, right? That's not true. Heaven is not boring. Heaven is, uh, some people say, well, heaven is where we will be absorbed into God. We just kind of, we the creation kind of become one with God. Um, heaven is not really a physical place. It's just a spiritual state of existence. But that, folks, is New Ageism. Hinduism, Buddhism, and Islam. It is not what the Bible teaches about heaven. We're not absorbed into God. Others say, well, heaven is for my happiness. Heaven is what I make it out to be. I mean, the life, the life here on earth kind of revolves around me, my needs, my anxieties, my fears, my shortcomings, my insecurities. Therefore, heaven just becomes uh, my, my idea uh, uh, projected onto, onto God. My projection of life that, that uh, I wanted here on earth that just didn't happen. In other words, heaven for some, they think, is going to be an eternal retirement center where it's just going to be what I want to do and what I want it to be. Heaven is not just for, while we will be happy, heaven is not just for my happiness. And there's a lot of other myths that heaven is way up there and God is far removed from us or that everyone's rewarded equally in heaven or that we all go to heaven if we're good enough. I don't know how good that is, but... We need to debunk the myths about heaven. When somebody comes to us or we have the opportunity to share uh, the good news of what the Lord has done for us, we need to be able to tell them where this is all headed. Because if this is it, <laughs> if this is all we have, planet Earth, the way it is, then I don't know about you, but that's not very exciting. So we need to tell them the truth. What is heaven like? Heaven is indeed um, a place where uh, where God dwells in a place where we will live eternally with Him. There are a few truths about heaven that I think most of us would understand and agree and be able to tell others about. John said, in 1 John chapter 3, John said that we will be like the resurrected Jesus. That when eternity comes, heaven, we'll be like the resurrected Jesus. Now, we won't be Jesus, but we'll be like Him. So in other words, we'll no longer sin. Our old sin nature will be removed. We'll become new creations. In fact, if we're like the resurrected Jesus, we're not subject to the laws of physics because in John 20, Jesus walked through walls. He walked through locked doors. And for 40 days after his resurrection, he appeared and he disappeared and he appeared. We will be like him. There will be no more natural laws binding us. The Bible indicates that we will eat and touch because in John 21, the resurrected Jesus had breakfast with the disciples. Now, we won't have to eat out of necessity. We'll eat out of fellowship and pleasure. The book of Revelation says that heaven has a tree called the tree of life that will bear 12 different kinds of fruit every month that we will partake of. In fact, in heaven, we'll never be sick again. How many of you are excited about that? It says in Revelation 22.3, there'll be no more curse, no more death, no more mourning, no crying, pain, sickness, or suffering. So in other words, we will be like Jesus and we will be with Jesus. Now, those are things that probably, for the most part, you know about heaven. You've probably heard those or you've even shared those with someone else. But what else does the Bible say? Does the Bible give us a better description of physically what heaven is like? Does it give us a better description of what we'll be doing? And I think that it does. Um, we need to know what the Bible reveals about heaven. Now, I have to tell you, there is no heaven book in the Bible. There's no heaven chapter, per se, in the Bible, but rather heaven is disclosed throughout the whole Bible. We, we learn about heaven by going back even to the beginning. In, in Isaiah 46, 10, the, the, the word says that God makes known the ending from the beginning. 
So to get a biblical view of heaven, we need to approach the Bible as one book, right? A whole book. We need to go back to the beginning and find out what does God say about heaven. And it begins in Genesis. And what I want you to see as we go through this is that the Bible is full of repetition. Names are repeated. Places are repeated. Patterns are repeated over and over. The Bible reveals itself in a cyclical manner. You could take a topic like wedding imagery. Start in Genesis 2.24 with God joining man and woman together, and you can follow that all the way through the Revelation and learn about, about marriage. You can do the same thing with a number of topics. You can study Bethlehem all the way through from the beginning to the end. You can study the kingdom of heaven. And so I want to look at God's heaven, biblical heaven. And I want you to see a pattern, and I hope I give you a tool today, maybe a different approach, if you will, for studying God's word, that you need to approach it as one book, and that you need to see that God has fulfilled everything that he has said he would fulfill in his word. Heaven is the restored Garden of Eden and the fulfillment of the temple system. I'm just picking those two things out of the Old Testament, and then we'll combine it with Revelation to see what heaven is like. So let me say that again. We're going to look at the Garden of Eden. We're going to see how it sets a pattern for heaven. We're going to see how the temple continues that pattern. And then we're able to withdraw from Revelation a better picture of what heaven is going to be like. So let's start with the Garden of Eden, if you will. How many of you know we're in exile? Because of Adam and Eve, because they sinned, in mercy, God placed two cherubim at the Garden of Eden at the entrance so that they could not go in to partake of the Tree of Life. Because had they partaken of the Tree of Life after sinning, they would have been eternally in that sinful state. So in mercy, God placed two cherubim to block them from the entrance to that place. When, when, God, when, when this earth is completed, when, the, when new heaven and new earth come, we will be opened back, the way to the Eden will be opened back again. In fact, Romans 8 says, All creation groans like childbirth for the redemption. When the kingdom comes, the way to the tree of life will be opened again. So let's look at the Garden of Eden. First of all, the Garden of Eden, if you go back to Genesis, it's described in three sections. The first section is the land of Eden. Now, a lot of people, when you talk about the Garden of Eden, they don't realize that it had different parts, and they think that it's like something you could just kind of stick downtown around the courthouse, a little bitty garden, right? No, the land of Eden covers most of the Middle East, okay? The land of Eden, not the garden, the land of Eden, you have to go back to Genesis to see the differentiation there. And I don't have time to go into all those verses, so you can study. Go back to Genesis, read. There's a land of Eden, which covers most of the Middle East. It is a vast territory. Now, the next circle in on our chart there is what we call the Garden of Eden. That's the second section. It faces east. The Bible says it's full of trees that are pleasing to the eye and good for food. In other words, it's God's provision for Adam and Eve or for mankind. Then there's a third part of the garden called the middle of the garden. It's the place where God's presence dwelt. It's where God walked in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. And we know that it's actually on a mountain. How do you know that? Because if you read the text, it doesn't actually say mountain. But what it tells you is that from the midst of the garden flowed rivers. One of them is the Gihon Spring. Have you ever seen a river flow up a mountain? They flow what? Downhill. So in order for those rivers to flow downhill, in order for them to flow, they have to ha it has to be a hill. There's a mountain. And not only is that a mountain in the midst of that garden, but it is actually a very familiar mountain. How many of you have ever seen that golden dome in Israel, in Jerusalem? That's Mount Moriah. 
That's the Garden of Eden. That's the middle of the Garden of Eden. That's the throne of God where he dwelt with Adam and Eve. How do I know that? Because it says the Gihon Spring flows from there. There's only one spot on the planet where the Gihon Spring comes out of the ground, and it's under that golden dome. I've been there. I've seen it. Right there, the Gihon Spring. I'm telling you, that's where Adam and Eve were made. Now follow that pattern throughout the rest of Scripture and see what all happens under that, on that golden dome even today. So Garden of Eden is made up of Land of Eden, first section, second section, Garden of Eden, third section, the middle of the garden. All right? There's the beginning of the pattern. What's the purpose of this garden? It's very simple. Fellowship with God. We were created for fellowship with God. Adam was told, subdue the earth, be fruitful, multiply. Now, while they did that, what happened along the way? Serpent came in, deceived them. What did they do? They ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and so they sinned. At that point, God introduced the sacrificial system. Long before the temple was ever, ever here, God introduced the sacrificial system. How do I know? As soon as Adam and Eve found out that they were naked, what did they do? They tried to hide with fig leaves. What did God do for them? Clothed them with the skin of an animal. First, first death of an animal. First sacrifice. God made the first sacrifice for the sin of mankind. Then after that, Cain and Abel tried to bring offerings to God. Cain, being a farmer, tried to bring fruits and vegetables. Abel, being a shepherd, a shepherd, brought a lamb. They knew when to bring these offerings because they brought them at the same time before God. They knew where to bring them before God, and they knew what to bring because God wasn't happy with who? Cain's sacrifice. They knew what they were supposed to bring, where they were supposed to bring it, and when they were supposed to bring it. That broken fellowship was restored through that sacrificial system so that man could once again draw near to God. So right here in the Garden of Eden, we know it has three divisions. Purpose is to fellowship with God. When man messed up, God sought to restore that fellowship through sacrifice. Now, let's go to the temple. I'll come back to the Garden of Eden in just a moment. Think about the temple. God's plan of redemption continues through the chosen people, the Israelites, right? The Jewish people through whom he set up a system of sacrifice in the temple. And the temple reflects Eden and foreshadows heaven. The temple was a physical place that had a large outer courtyard. Just like the land of Eden was large, the area around the temple was large. And it faced east just like the Garden of Eden. Then it had an inner court. That second, if you're moving from right to left, that second largest room there of that structure was the inner court of the temple. The table of showbread was there. The golden lampstand or the menorah was there. The altar of incense was there. Those things are symbolic provisions for man by God. The same way that in that, that, that circle with the garden that had the trees in it I showed you a moment ago, the trees are pleasing to the eye, good for food. That's God's provision for man. Same thing we find in the temple. And then in the next room, there is the most holy place. The presence of God dwelt in the most holy place over what? The Ark of the Covenant, remember? I know I'm going through this quick. Somebody told me once, it's like you opened up a fire hose on me, Pastor, and I'm trying to drink from it. I'm sorry. I told you. I wasn't exaggerating. I've got a lot I'm trying to squeeze in here in just a few moments. So if you don't get everything I'm saying, that's fine. Uh, let the Holy Spirit speak to you and give you what you need to remember. All right? That's better than what I'm going to tell you anyway. So, the most holy place was the place where the high priest could go one time a year into the behind the veil to minister on behalf of the people before God in the presence of God. In fact, he had to go through that veil that had what on it? Anybody know? Had cherubim on it. 
there are the cherubim again. We see the cherubim keeping man from going back into the Garden of Eden. Now we see the cherubim keeping man from going again into the presence of God, except for the high priest one time a year. And he had to have bells on his, on his garment with a rope in case he did something wrong and dropped over dead so they could pull him out. Right? Okay? So that's the most, most holy place. What's the function of the temple? Well, oh, wait, I'm sorry. I didn't show you the third one there. Mindy, you've got to help me uh, keep up here. That's my wife. She's supposed to keep me straightened out when I don't hit this button. All right. Purpose of the temple is the same as the Garden of Eden, to draw near to God, fellowship with God. It's the same purpose. As long as the temple stood, then man had a material reflection of what was going on in heaven. Now, let me, let me connect all this for you. Let's talk about heaven for a second. What I've just told you is that the Garden of Eden, prior to the fall, was God's plan for mankind, for God to be in fellowship with man, and that it was heaven-like. It was a picture of heaven. The temple, even, as, even with fallen man involved with it, the temple was still a foreshadowing of the realities of heaven. They were earthly physical replicas of what's in heaven. Let me say that again. The garden, the temple, earthly physical replicas of what's in heaven. Now, how do I know that? Go to the book of Revelation. We just read out of chapter 21. John is taken into heaven, and God shows him paradise, shows him eternity, shows him heaven. And guess what? He describes heaven in terms of three sections, just like the garden, just like the temple, John first sees a garden-like paradise, a garden paradise. Just like Eden had a large, covered the, the, the Middle East, just like the outer court was vast, the garden of heaven is vast. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul says that he was caught up in a vision to a place called paradise. In the Greek, it's paradisios. It means garden or like Eden. So Paul was caught up to a place, heaven, which means like Eden. All right? So I'm not making this stuff up, right? The Eden, Eden is a foreshadowing of heaven. So there's the first realm of heaven, that large garden paradise. The second realm, if you're looking at concentric circles, one step inward, would be the, the, the temple and the inner court because that's what John saw when he went to heaven. He saw the temple. He saw the temple and he saw God in the temple. Just like the garden and the inner court of the earthly temple, John sees the doors to the temple open up, and inside he sees furniture. He sees God's provision for man in the table of showbread. He sees God's wisdom in the menorah of light. He sees God communicating with man through the altar of incense and the prayers. Those were symbolizing the prayers that went up. So that temple had an inner court in heaven. And then John describes another layer in heaven, another place, another concentric circle. He goes in and he sees God seated on a throne, the throne of God, just like the throne of God was on that mountain in the Garden of Eden, and just like the God was on that Ark of the Covenant in that innermost part of the temple, God has a throne in heaven. And it says that the Ark of the Covenant is there in heaven. It says there were 24 elders gathered around the throne of God. Do you know how many priests, how many Groups of priests ministered in the temple, 24. There were 24 courses of priests who ministered in the temple, 24 elders serving God around the throne in heaven. It also says there were cherubim there in heaven surrounding the throne. There they are again. So heaven has a garden paradise. It has a temple 
with an inner court, and then it has a throne room where the throne of God is and God himself sits. We know that from looking at Eden. We know that from looking at the temple, and we know that from reading it in the book of Revelation. Now, let me get a little more detailed for you just a moment concerning the, uh, the garden and the temple. <clears throat> now, I understand we don't have another service, so we can stay here however long we want, right? Okay. Okay. All right. I'm kidding. Uh, the Garden of Eden and the temple both have a government structure by political, I don't mean Republicans and Democrats, folks. I'm, I'm talking about government. It has a government structure, a social structure, and a faith structure. Let me talk to you about those. You say, Eden had a government structure? Yeah. God was in charge, and man served God. It's simple, but that was the governmental structure. That's what we ought to have now. That's what we try to have now and what we will have eternally with God in heaven. And God, being in charge, gave man the authority to work and the authority to guard the garden, to subdue the earth, to name the animals. God gave Adam work to do. There was a governmental structure. There was in the garden a social structure. You say, how? Well, Adam and Eve were commissioned by God to express godliness throughout the earth. He said, subdue the earth. They were to grow the garden. They were to be fruitful. They were to multiply. The garden reveals the purpose of marriage. Genesis 2, 24, for this, man, for this reason a man will leave his, his uh, father and mother, cleave unto his wife, and the two will become one flesh. We're given the definition of marriage. That's the basis of society. One man, one woman, right? Genesis 2.24. In the garden, they even, through fault of their own, they even discovered the difference between good and evil. So there was a social structure in the garden. There was faith there. They built relationship with God. They walked with God in the cool of the day. They ate from the tree of life and then from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it became a place where they could draw near to God in fellowship. So the same thing we find in the temple, a political structure, a social structure, and a faith structure. You know that the temple became a town hall meeting place to discuss Israeli affairs. The temple was a lot more than just bring a goat and have it sacrificed on an altar. It was a part of their lives. It was a part of, just like the church should be. It should be a part of our lives. It should be a, not, not just a place we visit on Sunday. It should be something that we live out um, every day of the week. And, and the church is not a building, by the way. I understand that. So the temple had a governmental structure. The Sanhedrin, the great Sanhedrin, met there to administer justice. The temple system centralized Israeli power and wealth because gold was kept in the temple. Tithing was the practice whereby they could distribute wealth to the needy. That was done there at the temple. So there was a government structure there where those in charge helped to lead society. There was a social structure. The temple was the center of social life. All of those feasts that you read about, right? Seven uh, feasts that you read about in the scriptures, those pilgrimage feasts especially led to commerce at the temple. In fact, Jesus got angry because they weren't being honest in the temple, right? And he ran out the, the money changers because they were trying to take advantage of people. Food distribution took place for the, wid for the widows and for the needy at the temple. So society was lived out, carried out at the temple. There was a faith structure there. It was a center of religious life. The feast defined, helped to define the life of a believer. They define, the feast talk about how to relate to God. They point to Christ ultimately. So they, 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 they were built around worship of God. It was a place of prayer, a place of singing. It was a place where the priests did their work, where they, where they read the scripture, where they studied the scripture, where they taught the scripture. 
So there was faith structure that was a part of the temple. Now, what I want you to see is we're going to have these same things in heaven. Now, here's where the rubber begins to hit the road a little bit. Here's where we can maybe wrap our minds a little bit more around what are we going to be doing in heaven. Because I've shown you now an obvious pattern between the Garden of Eden, the temple, and heaven. Three sections in each one. Government structure, social structure, faith structure in each one. Let's look at heaven. The governmental structure of heaven. Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 6, he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He's seeing heaven. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Right? John, when he enters into heaven, in the book of Revelation, sees God on a throne. So there's a government structure there. Heaven, and especially that throne room, is the command center where God oversees the universe currently as well as futuristically. He answers prayers. He dispatches angel armies. He does warfare on our behalf. He executes his master plan. That's what he's doing right now. There are angels there. There are cherubim there. There are 24 elders there. There are saints there, it says, who are carrying out the will of the Lord. When a new heaven and new earth comes, Revelation says that all the nations of the earth will go up to Jerusalem to worship and serve the Lord because he is king, because he is uh, in charge of the governmental structure of, of the new heaven and new earth. Jesus tells the apostles, he says, you will rule over the nations. In Revelation 22, 5, it says they will reign forever and ever by serving one another. Matthew 25 tells us that those who are faithful over a few things will be ruler over many things. We've got, we've got jobs in heaven. You know, there are 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe. Why? Because we were created with an innate desire to explore. We're going to explore in heaven. It even talks about boundaries and walls in parts of heaven. So there's structure. There's social structure. Heaven is going to be a place of work. Now hold on. Stay with me for a minute. It's going to be a place of work and a place of production without the curse. Without the curse. Imagine work without a curse. Imagine going to work and you never get tired. There's no stress at work. There's no boredom at work. There's no corruption at work. I told the first service, I'm looking for that job now, right? I'd love to have that job. No stress, no problem. Everybody gets along with everybody. There's no corruption involved in it. There's work in heaven. Man was created to work, and then we fell. And when that's removed, that sin is removed, we will work in heaven. John 5, 17, Jesus said, My Father is always at work, and I too am working. We're going to work like the Father works. Gates, it talks about gates in the heavens, and the city of heaven, clearly indicating coming and going. That's what gates are for. And, and Revelation 22, 3 says that God's throne will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him there. So we're going to be working and serving God in heaven, not floating on clouds, playing harps. We're going to be working. In fact, how many of you believe that you have, if you know Christ as your Savior, you have a gift from God? You have spiritual, well, the Holy Spirit is a gift, but I'm talking about spiritual gifts. Through the Holy Spirit, God has gifted you with certain abilities, spiritual abilities to do things. But how many of you also know that we cannot use those gifts to their fullest extent in this sinful body? <laughs> I mean, I do the best I can, and I think I can do better than I am through the power of God, but I'm limited with sin until this until this world is done and, and finished and he recreates it, then in some ways my giftings are limited. 
Those gifts don't go away. Those gifts weren't created for this sinful planet. Those gifts were created for eternity. Those gifts are created so that in heaven forever you will use and develop what God has given you. Listen, on this earth God caused the wind to blow. He enabled man to have a brain to harness it with a windmill and create electricity. So can you imagine what we're going to do in eternity without the boundaries of sin? We're going to spend an eternity cultivating with God. Yeah. Creating. Growing. Producing. Working without the curse. That's what the Bible says. In fact, it says we're going to learn in heaven. You don't become omniscient in heaven. You don't, you're not God. We will never be God. <laughs> he is omniscient. I will never be omniscient. Now, I know that kind of maybe stretches your thinking there a little bit about heaven, but the Bible never says that we're going to become God. So what that, in fact, in Ephesians 2, 6 and 7, it speaks of God showing and revealing his grace or his gifts to us. God will continue to reveal his gifts to us in heaven. And yes, we'll be able to rest in heaven too, thankfully. It says we'll, re we'll rest from our labor or hard work, not from working, but from hard work, work with sin. So I've just told you there's a social structure. We'll, we'll, be, we'll have jobs. <laughs> we'll carry out work. We'll live in community. In my father's house are many rooms, it says. Okay? So it's not so far distant from earth, but it's without the sin. Now, why am I telling you all this? Well, I'll get more to this at the end, but most of the time our descriptions of heaven fall short and people can't identify and connect with it. Okay? Um, heaven has a faith structure, too. I said heaven is the restoration of the garden. Okay, well, in Genesis 2.15, it, it uses two interesting words there in the Hebrew. It says that God put man there, put, to work the garden. He put man to work the garden. The word put means to provide security to enable you to be free to worship. Right? If you study that word out, that's what it means. God, in the beginning, before there was sin, placed Adam and Eve in the garden, gave them the security to be free to worship Him. You know what? Worship Him best as I might today. I'm still restricted by my sinful body. I'm still restricted by my sinful mind. That's my flesh. Paul talked about in Romans 7. Things I should do, I don't do, and the things I, I, I ought to be doing, I'm not doing. And, all right? So when we get to heaven, God will do what he did in the beginning. He will put us in a place of security where we are free to worship him eternally. I, I used the analogy earlier that, thank God for wonderful worship teams, but every worship team would tell you they hit a wrong note every now and then, they sing a sour note. It won't happen in heaven. We won't have those restrictions. We'll be free to worship Him. And then the second word was work. It's simple. It means to obey God's instruction. So that's what they were doing in Eden. That's what we'll do in heaven. We'll worship without restriction, and we'll work eternally uh, obeying God's directions. We'll be able to draw near to God, and yes, we will sing, and we will dance, and there will be instruments to worship, but we will also be working eternally, serving the King of Kings. Now, I could go on literally for hours and give you a lot more details, a lot more information about the connections between the Garden of Eden and the temple and other things in the Bible and heaven. But I want you to see this, that what, what, when God created us, it wasn't with the intent that we would disobey him. 
It was with the intent that we could live eternally with him. And so the culmination of everything, from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation, the culmination is that we will live in a restored Garden of Eden, a, a fulfilled temple system. Talk about fulfilled now because Jesus has come and he is the sacrifice, right? He fulfilled it. And we will live in heaven eternally with God, serving and worshiping him. And what, what set me out on this study so many years ago was just the inability, my own inability, to say anything more about heaven than the thing that everybody says. Somehow we morph into angels and we get fat little cherub bodies and we have harps and we float around on clouds and that's what we do every day. We're just going to sing. I Listen, I love singing, but he asked me earlier if I wanted to leave my mic on and they could hear me singing in the, in the sound booth. Absolutely not. Singing is not my forte and it's not my favorite thing. I love worship. There are other things that I like, too, that we're going to be doing in heaven. But I couldn't tell anybody what heaven was really, really like. So let me just, as I wrap this up, let me just give you a few reasons why this topic is important to us today. First reason is this. Heaven encourages and challenges us as believers. Heaven should stimulate your prayer life. Right? Because you have an end game. You have a goal. You have something that we're moving towards. We need to pray that everything is moving us towards the ultimate end that's coming, that we see coming so quickly. Heaven challenges believers to live our lives so that the blessings and the reward of God will be ours. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not talking about your salvation, that you somehow can work and earn your salvation. Okay? Um, I'm talking about that's the gift of God. That's what grace means. But, nonetheless, we know that there are rewards and we know that there are blessings in heaven that somehow there's a, I don't understand it all, but there's a system of rewards in heaven. We don't get jealous of one another, but there are rewards in heaven. The Bible makes it plain. It talks about it a lot, in fact. And how we live our lives here makes a difference as to what our blessings and rewards are there. We'll all be there if you know Christ, but there'll be, there'll be uh, blessings and rewards. So, understanding heaven helps us to live with a proper perspective now. A biblical view of heaven explains even the Bible timeline and events. I, I just uh, finished up a class at a church uh, where I was teaching for a year. I taught the book of Revelation, verse by verse, phrase by phrase. Um, I, talked, I taught the Hebrew roots of Revelation. Yes, I know it was written, I know it's in Greek, but it was written by a Hebrew thinker, okay? So there's a lot of Hebraic, a lot of Hebraisms in Revelation. And, and uh, as I taught through that, I, I realized the place that heaven plays and how, how an understanding of heaven helps us understand Bible timeline and events. Heaven not only encourages us and challenges us as believers, but it provides solutions for a lost world. Listen, people more than any time in history, I think, are fascinated with life and death. Now, some of those fascinations lead to morbid misdirection, the occult, horoscopes, and astrology, and New Ageism. But people are fascinated with life and death, and they need for you to be able to tell them about heaven. You know, there's a scripture, I think it's in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, says, and I'm paraphrasing, says that it is better to go to a funeral than a party. That's what it says. It's better to go to a funeral than a party. Why? 
Because at a party, you think about the moment, and you talk about yourself, and you have fun, and you laugh, but that's where it stops. At a funeral, you think about life and death, right? Funeral is one of the best places that we have to impact lives. We need to be able to tell people about what God has in store for us, where God is now. Heaven is not way up there somewhere. If, if I could strip sin from our eyes right now, we would see heaven. Understand that? It's vast, just like the Garden of Land of Eden. Heaven is not up. You can't get the right rocket to finally get up there and see God on his throne. Heaven is not a, it is a physical location. It does have physicality, but beyond these senses, okay? Heaven is all around. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we need to give an answer to those who are, are uh, misdirected about life and death. People are also interested in prophecy and eschatology more than ever before and for good reason. Driven by a nuclear arms race and terrorism, mass shootings and natural phenomena that we can't explain, people are wanting to know what's coming, what's happening, where's all this leading to? So an understanding of heaven provides answers to that. An understanding of heaven helps provide uh, hope to those who are depressed, stressed out, angry, hopeless. Listen, suicide and murder rates climb. On Monday, I did the funeral of a friend of over 25 years who took his life the week before. Felt hopeless, as though he didn't have any, nothing to live for. Because all he was living for was this. Didn't understand eternity. Didn't understand heaven. We need to be ready to provide an answer to those who are hopeless. Millennials are leaving churches looking for answers. Social media negatively impacts our mental health, our values, promotes fake news. I mean, it does. I'm not saying God can't use those things as an instrument. Because God can, but we, we don't. And so when somebody is, is, is contemplating suicide, and you try to talk to them about a fat baby floating around on a cloud playing a harp, that's no comfort. No. They can't identify with that. But they can identify with understanding that it's like this, but perfect. <laughs> and, and a lot more than that. Again, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm about out of time here. A practical, realistic, biblical view of heaven answers a lot of questions. Provides hope, reward, expectation. Puts life in perspective. Provides solution to the sin problem. We're headed somewhere in Christ. We have eternal life with God in a place that's real. Heaven's a great evangelistic tool. Say to somebody, do you believe in the afterlife? What happens when you die? And then be ready to tell them, Here, here's what heaven's like. Here's, here's where, what God's doing now. Where would you go if you died right now? Heaven's not just somewhere that we're waiting to get to either. Listen, we invite heaven, the kingdom of God, into our lives today. That's what Jesus taught his disciples. Matthew 6.10, they were to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That means it's here. Again, if we weren't fallen beings, we could see. We would, we would have the other senses that we need to be able to see heaven around us. Heaven is not just future, it starts now. It is invading earth. Heaven is for real. And we need to call it down. We need to understand it. My wife and I, um, <clears throat> every evening, faithfully, we have a border collie that we walk about a mile or two around our neighborhood. And uh, it was last night, I think, we were about a block away, and I noticed a house that was going up for sale. And it had the, the 
the real estate sign on it, but instead of saying for sale, it said coming soon. So you can't look up the price of the house yet. You couldn't move into that house yet if you wanted to, but it's coming soon. Well, I want you to know that God has put out the coming soon sign on heaven, okay? And, and while we're walking in the kingdom of God now, not in its fullness, it's not complete yet, um, it's coming soon. And more than ever, we see that unfolding. Now, I don't know the day nor the hour. I told the first service, I'm not going to pick a day and tell you all to all come to my house and drink the Kool-Aid, right? Okay, you know what I'm talking about. Jesus said, no man knows the day nor the hour, but then he said, but there are signs. And he talks about it in Matthew 24 and throughout the whole Bible. Signs that we're to look for. And I'm telling you now, the Lord is coming soon. He's coming soon to culminate his plan, to bring us to heaven, spend eternity with him. So what I hope you get out of today is this. There's more that God's word has to say to you about all the things of God, and especially heaven. We've only really known part of it, and we've listened to a lot of traditions that fall short. We need to know what God says. Dig into God's word. Not a commentary. Listen, everything I've said is commentary. You understand that? <laughs> it's my commentary. So you need to get into the word and make certain that my commentary lines up with God's word. Okay, and study it for yourself and not just heaven. Pick other themes and study it throughout the Bible and show, allow God to reveal himself to you. We need knowledge. The beginning of what? What does it say? Right, the beginning of wisdom is knowledge. We need to know so that God can apply wisdom. And so I pray that you will embrace the kingdom of God today. I'm going to close in prayer and ask the worship team if they would to come and close us out today. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you, Lord, that heaven is for real. Just as the Garden of Eden was a real place, as the temple was a real building, heaven is the culmination, the perfection. Those places were just blueprints. Heaven is the real deal. And it's to where it's the place that we all want to be, walking in the cool of the day with God, underneath God's direction, operating and living in a society serving God, worshiping God. And I pray today, Father, that whatever you meant to speak to every heart would be plain today, that we would leave today knowing exactly what it is that you've wanted us to learn, and that we would hide it in our heart that we might not sin against you, Lord. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen.